All right, 2 Peter chapter 3. You can make your way to the last section, verses 10 through 18. We're finishing 2 Peter up today. No more 2 Peter after this Sunday for a while, since we've gone verse by verse. Today, the conclusion of our study through 2 Peter. You can put your finger there. I'll eventually get there. Now we'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we bow in prayer before you. We're so thankful, God. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who's here to help us. So before we open the Bible in our laps, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts would be opened to give us understanding. These truths are spiritually discerned, and so we pray that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts for us to hear what your still small voice is saying through your living word, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Well, I've mentioned before enjoying ABC's Extreme Makeover Home Edition television show. Uh, A family, as most of you know, with great need or a worthy cause, uh, living in, shall we say, inadequate housing, are selected to receive a brand new dwelling, really a remodel to end all remodels. Um, Actually, it shouldn't even be called a remodel after what they do to it. So one of the most uh, awesome moments in the show is when the old structure is being demolished and they always kind of video that and send the clip to the vacationing family to see what their house now looks like. And here's an example of what they get. So they're all assembled around the pool and that... um, um, MC Ty, you know, is saying, hey, take a look at your house. How, we're, how do you think we're doing? And the look on their faces, you know, they know it was going to be remodeled, but they didn't expect that. And in just what's even more amazing is just in a matter of a few days, an entire new dwelling appears that supersedes the old one in every way imaginable. And up comes this from that. And they're pretty much amazed when they are hiding behind the bus and the bus driver moves that bus. The look on their faces to say, are you kidding me? This is where I used to live. And so, yeah, it wasn't really a remodel. It was sort of uh, a death and resurrection of sorts. And so, Here in chapter 3, some of you may have already figured out where I'm going with this. (laughs) Peter has been zeroing in on the second coming, which culminates with the end of the world. You do not have the appearance of Jesus without Armageddon, Great Tribulation, cataclysmic destruction of the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. The two of them go together. Jesus returns and the end of human history as we know it. But the false teachers of Peter's day are attacking Orthodox Christianity precisely at this point. Are you kidding me? A second coming. and Jesus is going to come through the clouds in great glory. And then he's going to call us to give an account of our life. Come on. Are you kidding me? And so... Last week, in verses 1 through 10, we saw that Peter said, you know what, folks? It happened once before. An entire world came to an end. And you can see remnants of it in the earth today. And Jesus uses that as an exhortation to those who think and justify that this is never going to happen by calling our attention that it has already happened one time by water. And Peter said last week, it was reserved for a day of fire and that it will happen again. And so in verses 1 through 10, leading us to our text this morning, Peter's been telling us what to believe about Jesus' second coming, and now in his closing remarks, what Christians should do about it. See, part and parcel with the second coming come some really dramatic changes. Our current home has a fixed date for renovation. Uh, Maybe you could call it an extreme makeover planet edition. (laughs) 
and the earth will be demolished. I mean, I don't want to steal the thunder of the first verse we're looking at. We did kind of look at it, but he does say the day of the Lord, which is code for his day, the second coming, will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it laid bare. But up from the smoldering rubble will arise a new creation, a new home, that when we see that new earth and the new heavens, it says you won't even remember the old, meaning that the glory of the new will just outshine the old, that we will not even recall it. And so as we pick up now in verse 10, just for context, we'll walk through these verses, we'll pause uh, now and again for reflection along the way, but we will finish uh, the chapter. So not only is Peter correcting the false teaching about the second coming, Peter is going to share its practical significance in the lives of Christians. So, right, verse 10, one more time, and then we'll move a little bit further. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. And then something very interesting, and speed, it's coming. We're going to talk about that. If you're taking notes, we're going to pause there. Roman numeral number one, the fear of the Lord, a worthy motivator. Now, some people say, you know, you're only a Christian because you're afraid of going to hell. And I say, you're absolutely right. Uh, fear is not an ignoble motivator to do the right thing. God has planted in the human soul a reaction a fearfulness about things that will hurt us. And so when we see a threat, we become afraid by God so that we, with brains, will put ourselves into flight or fight response. It's okay to have the fear of the Lord. And when the Bible, the Word of God, tells you, watch out, there are some eternal consequences for thumbing your nose at the living God and doing life the way you want then we ought to be reverently afraid of those kinds of consequences. Really, the fear of the Lord uh, is really defined as a natural and proper awestruck reverence toward Almighty God in view of his ma majesty, power, and eternal nature. Considering who God is, considering what's at stake, considering who we are, that's the combination that should bring a healthy reverence for God. Proverbs 16, verse 6 says, the, through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. You see, it's a good thing. It helps us. It motivates us. And what the false teachers were saying is, let's do away with the fear of the Lord. God is a God of love. And even Paul the Apostle says, you're saved by grace. Therefore, let's use grace as a cover to indulge our sinful indulgences and nature. And so he's going to address these things. And so the fear of the Lord, he's saying, in genuine faith in the gospel is evidenced by you live, so, by the way you live. So what is he saying? He's saying here, right at first, have you been listening? Do you really get this? Or do you buy the gospel? Because the whole gospel from Genesis to Revelation is about the second coming, the demise of this world, and the creation of a new heavens and earth. Enoch prophesied, seventh from Adam, as creation was just settling into place. Enoch, seventh from creation, prophesies, I see the Lord coming with his holy ones in the clouds of glory. We're not even out of Genesis uh, in the early chapters before we're talking about this coming in the Greek, this parousia, this appearance of God who's coming to judge the world and to bring it to destruction and to up and create 
a new heavens and a new earth. So he says, does the idea of judgment help sober you up? And is it translated and evidenced in your life by the way you live? Please don't tell me that you believe the gospel and then do not live like you're expecting what is coming. So he says he's coming to judge the world. You believe this, right? So you ought to be ready. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, is going to appear any second and judge the living and the dead. Now, Christians and non-Christians both stand in judgment. Christians uh, in, a, in something called Christ's judgment seat, to be evaluated for our faithfulness as saved people. That judgment does not end in hell. It ends with a reward uh, or loss of reward, honor or loss of potential honor. But we would be saved at the end of that judgment. That is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. The only other judgment, well, there are some other judgments, but the judgments that we are talking about, the unbelievers, will be condemned for rejecting Christ, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence. Another illustration of the cataclysmic events of the physical elements, earth and sky fleeing away, but judgment remaining. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. So Peter is saying, we've talked about the judgment that God is bringing, a joyful thing that Christians anticipate and a horrible event for unbelievers who disobey the gospel. And he says, does this sober you up? Are you living right? Are you, are you really understanding that you have an appointment with God? And you're going to sit down with him, and you're going to talk about things like he's going to say, okay, the summer of 07, let's talk about that. Now, now here's what the books are saying. This is what we all know happened. Let's talk about what happened here. Let's, let's address these issues. Are you believing that today will be part and parcel of what the living God will talk to you about when you see him? This Sunday will come under his scrutiny. Your words, your thoughts, your motivations, your attitudes, your choices. That's what we're going to talk about. And so Peter's just saying, are you tracking with me? So if that's going to happen, what kind of person ought you be? If you believe that, of course, if you believe that is the thing. If you know your boss is going to call you in for an evaluation, that's pretty important. You know, maybe your job's on the line. Maybe uh, it's the issues about a reward or uh, a raise. Is that the time when you know it's in three days from now, you'll sit across from him, him with a clipboard, and you will answer the questions, and he will bring your strengths and weaknesses out. He will evaluate you as his steward to do his bidding because he hired you to assist him. Is now the time to slack off? Not show up, be late, put your feet up on the desk, be caught slacking off, doing nothing, causing problems with coworkers. I don't think so. I don't think so because the knowledge of what's coming is dictating how you ought to live today. That's what Peter is saying here. The second thing he says ought to slap you around and make you live the right way is the surprise element. You know, he's echoing Jesus' words. Jesus said, hey, the second coming's going to happen, phase one, just like a burglar. No one really sees him coming. So the abruptness and the finality of the event, when the trumpet goes and the church is removed, it's done. There's no more opportunity for you to get to the thing, spiritually speaking, that you've been wanting to get to. There'll be no more opportunity to spend longer in prayer. 
or to revise your Christian disciplines, or to stop uh, giving way to that besetting sin, or to love more deeply, or believe more devotedly, or walk more humbly. Done. Trumpet sounds. Half are taken away, the other half left. Done. It's sealed. The end of history now has seven years to go. Three and a half of peace, three and a half the 21 judgments of Revelation, and then culminating in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Peter's just saying, you buy that, right? Just want to check. You believe it, then let me see how you live your life, and then I'll know if you believe it or not. Uh, so it is going to come in a flash in the twinkling of an eye. The apostle says, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the last trumpet will sound at the and we will be changed. In a twinkling of an eye, he says, that ought to sober us up. I love Jesus' words, and I've paraphrased it. I hope you don't mind. And here's the essence of what Jesus, our Lord, God in a human body, has to say about the last days. About that day, Jesus says, no one has a clue about the exact time of my appearing. But know this, it'll be just like the days of Noah. A regular day like any other, shopping, commuting, staff meetings, engagement parties, and then boom, people will look around and see that some at the party remain and some have disappeared. Some at the meeting remain and some have disappeared. Kind of like a thief. No one sees him coming, but you know he's been there after the fact. So Jesus concludes, if anyone is smart, they will be busy serving the master while he's gone so that when he pops in, he will find them busy at the work that he gave them to do. It will be a great day for them, but wicked people aren't so smart. They say, you know, the boss has been gone forever. I'm going to do my own thing, and the master's going to show up on a day they least expect him, and they will be caught unprepared and severely punished. So what do we conclude? Just what Peter's trying to say. The wise believed the master's words who said, hey, I got a job for you to do. I'm going to disappear for a little while. I got stuff to do, but I will be back and we'll talk about the job you're doing. And by the fact that when he did pop in, they were engaged in his business, their lifestyle evidenced their faith. In his words, the foolish so-called servants disbelieved the master's words. Uh, he said, I'll be back shortly. And the scoffers said, yeah, right. You know how many years he's been gone? He's been gone forever. And when he pops in and finds them slacking off, doing their own thing, in fact, doing things counter to his own business, his own intent, working against the master on the other team. Then he says, oh, then you know that whatever came out of their mouth as far as what they believe, their lifestyle gave them away. They are unbelievers and scoffers. I read a T-shirt on somebody's, uh, some guy at the mall. It says in a mocking way, Jesus is coming again. Look busy. You know what, my friend? <laughs> You're going to wish you were busy when Jesus appears in the sky. He's very smart. He will know who's play acting and who belongs to him. And dog is your co-pilot and tolerance this and tolerance that. Wait and see. Every eye shall see as lightning strikes from the east to the west, the sky will light up and every human soul, those who have already perished under the earth, will see him as he comes in clouds of glory. And it says the world will mourn. The world will look and say, we've made a big mistake. That's really the essence of that. And so that this whole idea then is the fear of the Lord ought to determine how you're going to live. Jesus' own words. Uh, now, Peter just goes to the big ticket items. The sun, moon, and stars will disappear. The word there in the Greek is to pass away. Jesus' own words about the 
this event. There will be signs in the last days in the sun, moon, and stars, Jesus speaking. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of God coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This, this, these, are, these are Jesus' words. The Old Testament prophets, all the stars of heaven will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4, meaning this, even space-time relationships will be broken. When you don't have the constellations and you don't have sun, you do not have time. Time will be no more as earth and the heavens pass away. And now we've entered from human history. We've gone to eternity with the Lord. And so God did not build this world to last forever. It's in the process of decay and one day will be rendered obsolete. And Romans chapter 8, love this. It says, the whole creation has been groaning under a curse of bondage and decay, as if the earth was in painful labor of childbirth right up to this present time, waiting for the relief that his appearing will bring. So what is Paul saying there in Romans chapter 8? He's saying that even the creation is showing signs of decay and struggle, that it's falling completely apart. Earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, hurricanes, typhoons, uh, disease and pestilence, droughts and famines. The earth is saying, I am dying. And the Bible validates that word and says that one day God is going to finish that out and then create something new. And then with a drama that only the Holy Spirit brings, he says, the place will go up in a roar. Now, the word for roar there is a colorful Greek word. Michael Green, commentator, put it this way. The word for roar is used to describe the swish of an arrow through the air, the rumbling of thunder, or the crackle of flames, or the scream of the lash as it descends or the rushing of mighty waters, or the hissing of a serpent. It's the sound of the last gasp of planet Earth on her deathbed. Then there's a pause, and he says, what kind of person should you be? And he says, let me answer that for you. <laughs> Two words come to mind, holy and godly. The word holy, hagios in the Greek, it means to be separated from the corruption of sin in your own life, in your own heart, in your own mind, and in the world, the pollution of the world. To keep yourself unspotted is to be holy. And holiness means separated to God. So not just away from the bad, but turned toward and fully completed, given over to God and his purposes. That's holiness. The other word he says, Jesus makes it really simple. If you live a holy life and godliness, it means to have the kind of character that is in keeping with the moral excellence of God himself, his nature, that the way God is his love, his patience, his goodness, his kindness, that that's what emanates from your life. He says, if you're working in those two regions of separating yourself from the corruption of sin, whether it's in your own life, in your family setting, or in the world, and giving yourself completely consecrated over to God, you're holy and also godly, that the Holy Spirit is working through you character qualities that are uh, consistent with the moral virtue of the God of heaven who is pure above pure. So he's not asking us to be perfect. He's asking us to be devoted over and yielded to. 
We are not manifesting that character quality. That's a fruit called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if the Holy Spirit is a tree, the fruit upon the Holy Spirit would be uh, faithfulness and love and joy and peace and goodness and brotherly love. Those are things that come from him as we yield and cooperate and put to death the misdeeds of the body by the present help of the Holy Spirit. So these are just ideas that he is giving us. He's saying this is the kind of person that you ought to be. And then that interesting little line that I love. He says, as paraphrase here, verse 12, as we're living holy and godly for the Lord, the day of the anticipating the day of the Lord, by our godly cooperation with him, we are hastening the day of his arrival. We're speeding it up. Now, that's an awesome thought. Now, here's the idea behind it. It's kind of a hint. He's saying, God has purposes to achieve here. He's transforming us into the image of Jesus, and he sent the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to carry on, listen, the work that Jesus was doing when he was here. So, so Jesus didn't go away and say, you know, you know, I'm done with ministry. He's saying, now I am going to fill the church's hearts and take my gospel and do what I was doing throughout the earth in you. You are my mouthpiece. You're my hands. You're my feet. You continue that. And when God has accomplished his purpose on the earth, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, which is just a, a theological way of saying, when the last soul is saved, boom, the church is removed and judgment comes down. So he's saying, folks, if we work together and cooperate with God and facilitate efficiently his purposes, like in a three-legged race, when you get in cadence with that person and you're just yoked together, but the two of you are like one, you win the race, you will win the race. You will speed its coming. Now, it's hard to wrap our minds around that God, as sovereign as he is, could factor in human actions into his plan, but he does. Did Israel need to spend 40 additional years wandering around in circles? God is like, look, folks, I got lots of time. Uh, 40 additional years is nothing to me, but unfortunately, it's a generation for you, and you are going to spend an extra uh, 40 years because of your disobedience and your stubbornness. And so we can delay or we can help. And he's asking, is your help, is your life helping? He's saying holy people and godly people will pray more. What are you praying? Well, the Lord said, pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come. So we're all praying because we're holy and godly. Thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. God answers prayers. He's saying through your prayers, holy and godly people do something else. They have a passion and a heart for the lost. Matthew 24, Jesus says that the end will come after the gospel is preached to all the earth. Then he says, then the end will come. So Peter's saying, look, holy and godly people pray more. They're more dedicated. They are more missions-minded. And they are evangelists. They care about souls. And in this regard, you will hasten God's purposes on earth as you cooperate with him. And I'm going to go off on this little bunny trail because I really like this. Now listen, I like this idea. I know it didn't mean I like this sermon per se. I like this whole idea. Listen, when Jesus decides I'm going to feed the 5,000, he knows the day he's going to do it. He knows what they're going to eat on the menu. He knows who's there. He set the whole thing up. 5,000 people. Then he tells the disciples, here's what I want you to do. You'll be seating them in 50s, and he gives them instructions about the rows. And then you'll get the baskets, and then you'll go here, you'll go there, you go here, you go there. Go for it. Now, I can see, depending on how the disciples go about the work, it ending at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock. 
Now, if they're all working together and they're in love and it's like, oh, you first, you first, don't worry. You know, or, or you got a couple of disciples are sitting under a tree going, 5,000 people, we need a nap, man, come on. So they're taking a little break. God is a God of grace. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to get done. Or you got Peter and John. How many fish in your basket? Also, you're serving a larger area than me. <laughs> I don't think so. I think we're equal in God's eyes. So why don't you take this basket and I'll take yours? And this little fight breaks out about that. You know what? It's going to be later in the day that God accomplishes the feeding of all of those people. And I think, folks, if you think about it, that's the hint there. Get it together and let's get this thing done. That's what he's saying. And then you're thinking, and I'm thinking, I'm just one person living in Santa Rosa. Uh, what are you telling me? Like, I'm going to make a big difference. What if the last soul that God has deemed fit to be saved is the guy in your carpool? And he's waiting on you to get your life together and care about a lost soul and actually lead him to the Lord. And then you lead him to the Lord and the whole church is raptured. Thank you. <laughs> and you laugh. You know why? I'm telling you the truth. There's going to be a last soul. There's going to be a last soul. And somebody's going to get him. You know what? It's going to be me because I'm looking for him. All right? And that's all Peter's saying. He's saying, are you looking? Are you praying? Are you living it? Or is he dragging you around or spending 40 extra years paddling you because you're the naughty Christian who's lived by grace and all of that, causing problems and distracting others and all of that? He says, come on. Let's get this thing happen. I heard a line about the Concordia, the Italian cruise liner that's still on its side in the Mediterranean Sea. And here's the line. The Concordia crew did in 14 hours what a more organized, dedicated staff could have done in three hours. That's what I'm talking about right there. Now, when he says we're going to speed his coming by getting it together with him, he does not mean, P.S., Christianize the world. The world is not to be Christianized. The world is to be saved. We're not trying to Christianize the inhabitants necessarily. We're trying to get them in the lifeboat. We're not trying to save the vessel. The vessel is going down. The world, according to the Lord, at the end, he says, when I come back, will I even find faith? Rhetorical question, not much. He says, evil men will go from bad to worse, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The world will be in a deplorable state of depravity and immorality and deceit when Jesus Christ comes back. He is not saying you need to, to uh, in a political sense, take over the world. He's saying, man, the lifeboats. Now, Christians in government, good thing. Salt of the earth, good thing. The earth is going to get one of those excavators right through it. This isn't our job to Christianize the earth. Our job is to preach the gospel to every living creature, get them in the ark. And when they're in the ark, he brings down a judgment that does away with the old and brings the new. Verses 13 to 16, I have to kind of rush now. But in keeping with his promise, praise God, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote, you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. And so I would say uh, Roman numeral number two, just an easier point here, diligent effort today. 
Now, interesting to me that already in the first century, they are calling Paul's letters scripture. That's one indirect truth that you get from this text. But really, Christians aren't just looking forward to the demolition of the dilapidated world, but the renewal of one that's coming. And so, yeah, it's kind of an awesome thought to, to picture the demise of the earth like we talked about. But he's saying in the death, there's a resurrection. Lazarus has to die before the glory of God is going to be revealed in the new life. And for all of us to be in heaven, singing God's praises around his throne, faultless, with our sins forgiven, with crowns, Jesus had to go on that cross. So there's the, the demolition, and then there's the renewal, and we're looking forward to both with an eye toward the new heaven and the new earth. And so uh, the Psalms and, and also the prophets, Isaiah 65, Behold, I will create new heavens and new earth. The former things will not be remembered, or, nor will they come to mind. And so, uh, you know, Peter just mentions it so briefly about this new world that we're all so curious about. If you want more information, you won't find it in Second Peter about the new world. You could find it in uh, Revelations chapter 21 and 22, uh, Isaiah 11, about the peace of God there, no more wars, the animals, the wild animals now are lift, the curse is lifted and they become friendly, the lion lays down with the lamb and a leopard will come up and lick your hand instead of biting it off, uh, which is a good thing. And uh, Jeremiah 23, uh, no more wars, Zechariah 8, the prominent role Israel will play. Isaiah uh, also 65 with new renewed lifespans. Those who survived the tribulation and those who are resurrected as tribulation saints and martyrs will enter and populate the new world. And they will live for very much long time like they did before the flood. And so... Uh, even then, um, it's really like a peephole looking through. All Peter wants to tell you about the new world is its character. He says, it's the home of righteousness. Now, this has great bearing on what he's asking you to do. He's asking you, in light of what's coming, in light of the nature of where you're going and who you're destined to become, you ought to be practicing today by being holy and godly. Because the place you're going is filled with holy and godly. That's what it is there. Everything's right with God. In fact, in Revelation 21, it tells you who's not there. It says, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So what he's saying is you are destined by God as a believer, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, right? That's your destiny. That will happen. If you are a believer, you will one day arrive in moral perfection. You will be as patient as Jesus Christ. You will be as loving as Jesus Christ. You will be as merciful and compassionate and holy and morally pure as Jesus. You are on track to that. The place that you're going, that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you will be also. That place is also holy and godly. So in light of where you're going, what you'll be doing, who is there, you must be practicing now to get ready for who you're becoming and where you're going to be dwelling because that's what it is. Now, when I was in seminary, uh, Barb and I, and we were having babies at the time. Jordan was two. Zachary was born there. We went to Japan, where Peter would be born. But we went to Japan for four years. 
I thought it would be a good idea to take some Japanese lessons. We're going to go there for four years. So I, I learned to speak a little Japanese. Uh, we, did, we were employed by a Taiwanese Presbyterian church at the time. But we decided since we were going to Japan, we would go to a Japanese church on the off times. And we went to a Japanese Methodist church and met some beautiful Japanese Christians who we befriended. We had them over for dinner. They had us over for dinner asking questions. What should I say? What shouldn't I say? How do you greet people? Uh, uh, what, what, what is culturally acceptable? What is not? Help me get ready so that when we went over there, we were more acclimated. We were, we were kind of ready. I knew, you know, don't offer the hand. They don't hand. Don't hug them. They don't know what to do. You hug them, they just go, oh, you're weird. <laughs> just stand back and bow. When you take your business card out, you take it with two hands and present it like this. That is very rude to do it any other way. These are all things that I would have never thought about. How to think, how to speak, how to eat. Oh, come on. You know, you put down the metal fork and get used to two little twigs. All right? You're going to lose a little weight because you can't get all the food in as easily <laughs> as with a shovel. <laughs> Now, think about my analogy. Follow me, all right? I'm going to Japan. I'm going to get there. Who cares? I'll learn it when I get there. You know, I don't care about the chopsticks. You know, I'll ask for a fork. They don't do forks there, sir. They do chopsticks there. Well, you know what? The way to greet people is with a big hug, and I'm going to shake their hand. That's the way I do things where I'm from. Uh, it's not going to work. You know, and you know what? I'm going to learn how to speak French because I've always wanted to. Well, you're going to Japan, sir. Why would you be studying French? Uh, when I get there, I'll say, parlez-vous français? You know, <laughs> oh, that's going to be really helpful. <laughs> Christians, so-called Christians. Do you know how to speak the language of the place you're going and who you're becoming? Do you even know how to say, how are you in heaven? It's a little bit different. God's kingdom is upside down. Everything. You want to know what it's like there? Just think what you would do naturally. What's your natural inclination? And reverse it. Then you'll find out, oh, this is how heaven operates. It's not about me there. It's about other people. It's not about selfish, sinful gratification. It's about holiness and godliness. And I think, friends, that reward is partially based upon how much of that new culture you've been able to accommodate and acclimate into your present life in this sinful world. There'll be people who arrive in heaven that instantly speak the language they're at home because they were at home already as citizens of heaven in this life. It grew that large in them. And there will be people who crash and burn on the runways of heaven. They pull them out alive in one piece, but they can't even speak a word. They have to learn it all there. They themselves will be saved, but have nothing to show for it. He says, listen, holy and godly, because of who you're destined to become and where you're going. It's a total waste of time for you to invest in your own thing, your own sinfulness, and your own selfish gratifications because it's a poor investment. You're to treasure, put, you're supposed to store up your treasures in heavenly places for where your treasure is, there will be your heart, right? <laughs> <laughs> that one always gets me. All right, thank you. Moving on, just closing thought here. A shout out to the Apostle Paul. I love this here. Um, our dear brother Paul writes with great wisdom about some the same things I've been telling you about. His letters are very deep and some parts are not easy to understand, which the false teachers love to twist and distort as they do with all parts of the Bible to their own demise. Now, why is he calling out the Apostle Paul? 
because the false teachers used the Apostle Paul to take a sound bite out of Romans and 1 Corinthians, just half the verse, and then create their false doctrine from it. For example, they would go to where he says, you know what, folks, everything is permissible for me. So they would take 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 10, where it says everything's permissible, and say, see, Paul says everything's permissible. They chop it off right there. Paul was speaking about matters of conscience, like drinking wine with your meal, or eating meat that had been dedicated to Zeus at the butcher, or keeping the Shabbat, the Sabbath day. He said, you know what? Those things, everything's cool with that. There's no thou shalt not. Those aren't moral concerns. Not everything is beneficial. So he says, and I will be mastered by nothing. So there are better principles. But they would, the false teachers said, look, folks, everything's permissible. And so what did Paul say? Justified by grace. So the false teachers said, hey, you're justified by grace. You are able to sin because there's nothing you can do. Once you're in Christ, you're justified. Amen? Are you not? Pastor Ross, are you justified by grace alone? Yes, I am. Then? Who are you to judge me? Is my sin any different than yours? Yes, it is. My sin is I'm in Christ. I know what sin is. I'm calling it sin. I'm turning from it and repenting from it. And there are occasional slip-ups. That is different than looking at a sin and saying, this sin is acceptable and I'm going to live this because I'm justified by grace. Paul says, you can't do that. And Peter's saying, our beloved Paul, they're twisting. In fact, the word for twist is this word here. It's the verb to twist what Paul says is from the, the windlass. This is called a windlass. And in the Greek, strabao, it means to torture or to put on a rack. So they take, we are saved by grace, Ephesians 2.8, and they put that on the rack. And then they stretch. That's the word to twist in your text there. Until you have a tortured text is not a truth anymore. It's a falsehood. And so they use the grace of God as a license to indulge in the sinful nature. All you need is enlightenment with God. He's a God of grace. He loves you. You can do as you please. Tortured stretched, distorted, perverted, and he says they do so at their own destruction. And so we just close out here with a note to guard. He says, therefore, closing out the whole book, dear friends, since you already know this, be on guard so that you may be not carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So uh, the clarion call, a warning siren. Here's what he's saying. This is important. Last words are usually very vital. So listen. He says, number one, in this paragraph, I know you're aware of these things. I know you know them. You say amen when I preach them to you, right? You've got a little orthodox list of Christian doctrines in your Bible, and you believe them. You're walking in truth. Very good. But he says, warning, spiritual error has many attractive faces by which even the most experienced can be beguiled to be put under a spell. He says then... Do not let your security in Christ kind of condone in you a careless attitude toward the struggle with deceitful sin and tantalizing philosophy. So the word there to guard is to keep watch over. Same word as the shepherds in uh, Bethlehem keeping watch over their flocks. And he says, pay attention. My last word to you, Christian, is I know you know it, but pay attention. Or A, your own heart will lie to you and you'll buy it. Pay attention, or the false teachers will scratch where you have a sinful itch, and you'll like it. Pay attention, or the world will applaud you and welcome you to join them, and you will. 
Pay attention or the devil who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour will have you for lunch and you will let him. Pay attention or you'll fall from your secure position. Two possibilities in Christian theology to fall as a Christian. Number one, it is a fall that either ruins your Christian testimony, short circuits your potential in Christ, invites the chastisement of God, alienates you from Christian fellowship as well as reward in the life to come, but you yourself are saved. Option one. The only other option for a Christian falling is it's a fall that exposes the truth that you never did experience an inner transformation of the new life in Christ, and the reason you fall is because you never were on the foundation to begin with. This fall ends in eternal disaster if it's not repented of. And so, yes, we have a secure position, but Christians can shipwreck, still be saved, ruin your life, your testimony, and your potential. Who were you supposed to be? You'd never know. God will tell you on that day. Oh, by the way, because of your foolishness, you shipwrecked this potential grace that could have been yours. I don't want to hear that. So he says, listen, he's not asking for perfection. He's asking for a couple things. Be consecrated to him and let that Christian character be in you in ever-increasing measures. Be a person who's dedicated to God, walking with him in trust. Make it simple. He loves me, I love him, I try to do what pleases him. You can boil it down to just that. And he says, that simple holiness and that simple character quality combined with the grace of God will see you through to the end. And you will arrive in his kingdom safe with a rich and warm welcome. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. It's just intense. It's, It's polarizing. It's engaging. It's intriguing. It's life giving and healing, comforting, challenging, exhorting. God, we love your word. It feeds us and nourishes us in the truth. And Jesus, you said if we know the truth, our hearts would be free. We want them to remain free as we walk in the truth. Give us the grace to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.